Hello, my name is James Cohen, and I am an Associate Professor of ESL Bilingual Education at Northern Illinois University. I am honored today to have the opportunity to speak with Dr. J.Q. Adams, who is a Professor Emeritus from Western Illinois University. For all three of the social justice camps that we have had thus far, Dr. Adams has been a staple keynote presenter, always engaging the campers with thoughtful commentary, creating a reflective environment. Dr. J.Q. Adams has spent his entire academic career studying and teaching about multicultural education and diversity. His degrees include a bachelor in philosophy degree from Michigan's Grand Valley State University, a master's degree in alternative education from Indiana University, and a doctoral degree in educational psychology from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. He spent more than 25 years at Western Illinois University where he created and taught undergraduate and graduate multicultural courses and was recognized for excellence as a teacher and a mentor. He has served as acting director of African American Studies and as director of the Educational Opportunity Program, as liaison for Golden Apple Scholars and on the Illinois State Board of Education's Teacher Certification Board. Dr. Adams will be speaking with me today about a 2019 text by Dr. Ibram Kendi titled, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and a 2020 text titled, Afro-Pessimism, by Frank Wilderson. So, without further ado, Dr. Adams, hello. Hey, how are you, James? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, my pleasure. So, it's, you know, I've, I've seen you do so many interviews over the years and your videos that you you've recorded. Uh, so it's a real honor for me to actually get to interview you for a change. <laughs> Should be fun. So one of the books that uh, you know, we want to spend some time on is the uh, How to Be an, Af- uh, an Anti-Racist by uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi. And in that text, he talks about the idea of there's no such thing as I'm not a racist. He says you have to either be, you are either a, an anti-racist or a racist, but there's no middle ground. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, please? Yeah, um, it's kind of a new angle dealing with this kind of issue um, because I think in previous uh, writings of many scholars and stuff, there's been kind of a position of neutrality that one could have where you know, I'm not really engaged in uh, racist actions. I think many people see that as being, that means I'm not racist, I'm a non-racist, okay? And that's been a place of comfort for a lot of people because for whatever reasons, one of the vilest things you can be called now in American society is a racist. And, And it's just totally fascinating to me, the reaction that you get from people when it's suggested that, you know, the policies you're making or a speech that you gave or some action that you gave says that you're a racist. That reaction has been palpable, you know, and, and very visceral in terms of the way people react. So Kendi, I think, kind of seizing the times, and, and this book couldn't have been written at a better time. Uh, it, it's almost like he had a, a view of the future and he's kind of looking around the corner, you know, and saying, 
ooh, I think I need to write this book right now because there's going to be some things happening that we're going to need a handbook for how to undo this stuff. And wow, here it is, right when we need it. So he's addressing, really addressing those people that find themselves, uh, uh, you know, on the fence, you know, in the middle of the road. I'm not really this, I'm not really that. And his argument is that if you are not working toward the dismantling of racist policy, then you are by the fact supporting it, maintaining it, uh, keeping a status quo, status quo going on, uh, you know, about it. That there is no middle ground here. Being not a racist is a position that complements the continuation of racism. So the opposite of a racist then is an anti-racist, someone who recognizes the destructive destruction of racist uh, racial policies and the divisiveness of those policies and how those policies do harm. And one is either working to dismantle those policies or you know, having some kind of complicit support of those. And so that stance is, is really, really important um, at this particular time in history when um, events around us are um, kind of making people define where they are and who they are, okay? Um, and so um, this is almost kind of a handbook for those who want to be working against racist policies really clarifies what that means. And so that stance uh, that Kendi is taking is, is a critical one. Uh, can't ride the bench anymore. You got to get in the game. And if you're going to get in the game, then you're either in support of those kinds of policies or you're working to deconstruct them if you really. So how do you explain then for those, for people such as Richard Spencer, the guy who coined the alt-right, uh, he doesn't call himself a racist. You've inter interviewed uh, David Duke, the, the past wizard, the grand wizard of KKK, and he doesn't call himself a racist either. Uh, so, that would be correct. So how do, you, how do you explain this? Well, they would look at themselves as being racialists, okay, which to them is a distinct difference between racism and racialism. And by racialism, they mean they are a people who are in love with their own people. Okay? So they're saying, I, we don't hate black people or brown people or any other, you know, skin color or person. We just love white people. And, it, you know, it's, it's a nice mind game. It's a nice wordsmithing um, that takes you away from this, you know, public harm that being called a racist creates because it's almost now that we have an agreement among American people that racism is bad, okay? That most people would support that. And if you are a racist, that's a bad thing. But if you're a racialist, oh, well, you know, that just means you love your people. Um, you love your people, don't you, James? I love my people. You know, what's wrong with loving your people? Well, the problem is, um, right from Kendi's book. If in loving you, your people, you create policies that take the equitable or equal uh, distribution of good services, so forth and so on, and allot them to one group over another group, 
that that that's problematic and that's probably going to be racist um, so it doesn't matter what you call yourself it's what policies do you support with policies are you in in the process of creating and how do those play out in the body politic and and so the the, the name itself isn't nearly as important as the actions one takes and especially when one is in a position to make make policy public level working for you know um, county state federal policies or even at a corporate level uh, within business structures and so forth if you're in that policy making position and you're making things that deny equal opportunity or equitable opportunity then one could argue very very clearly that you that those policies are racist could you give an example in the in an educational environment um, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff comes to mind, you know, obviously hiring would be one area um, where, you know, uh, especially in what I call um, districts that have had demographic shifts. Sometimes we call that ethnic secession. Some people call it white flight. Um, and I've worked in many of those districts. And, and, and there's an interesting phenomenon that takes place. You know, once you reach about 8% of difference in, in, in a district that was predominantly white, okay? Once you reach 8% minority, and that can be Latinx, that can be uh, African-American, that could be um, uh, some um, African group coming in like Somalis or something along those lines, that seems to create a social movement within that core white population that the comfort level of or whatever that is, says it's time to leave. And next thing you know, houses are going for sale and people are exiting. As that happens, and that can take somewhere between 10 and 20 years if you're going to get a whole flip over, usually 20 years for a flip over. But even within 10 years, you can get you know, major, major changes. What's interesting is what doesn't change is who's teaching, who's administrating, and who's leading, okay, in, in, in terms of school boards and so forth, which have a tendency to maintain the same integrity that was there before the flight. So I have worked with school districts where literally, this is no exaggeration, 98% of the kids are black and Latino, but 90% of the teachers are European American or white, and sometimes 100% of the board is white. That's problematic in terms of what kind of policies are they going to be creating, um, how effective are those teachers going to be working with students, and if there's a failure to see the need to um, create diversity within those, those layers there, one could argue that that's, a, that's a, a form of racism, okay, that would exist there. So that, that's one example. Um, so, I mean, a response to that, however, could be very easily, well, you know, they moved in our policies. Why do we have to change our policies? Why do we have to change our pedagogical practices when uh, we're lowering our standards? Yeah. Well, see, that, 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 those are often the arguments that they give. And you, usually by that time you get to that 10-year period, you start to see schools that were blue ribbon schools now are no longer even making, you know, the state standards, okay? 
So um, something obviously has happened, okay? And um, so these are basically the same teachers, these are basically the same administrators, uh, but the performance of students change. And so you also get arguments saying, well, they were, you know, inferior students. They just weren't as smart. Or, oh, they didn't get the backing they needed at home. You know, we, we can come up with all kinds of excuses. Generally what it is, teachers, administrators, did not change with their students. Okay, in other words, if you're going to create climates, okay, that are um, rich for learning opportunities, what worked for your primarily white students may not work at all um, for your African American or Latin students or whoever else is in there. So, for example, um, British Lit might have been a great class, <laughs> okay, but that's not serving the needs of those kids, right? Um, and if we're just interested in reading, why not be able to present reading materials that come from the experiences of, of those children? Um, you know, so that kind of adaptation is necessary to fit this new student body, okay? Um, and, but that, that takes consciousness. And if you don't have good leadership that can lead to equity, that can lead to equality, then you, you end up with, you know, with, with that, that kind of manifestation. And we also see it in discipline, um, those discipline numbers there tend to be you know, very distorted in terms of the percentage of quote-unquote minority kids. Uh, they'll be the vast majority of kids who get suspended and expelled. They'll be the vast majority of kids in special education. So we've got a lot of phenomena that happen, and a lot of it is the resistance of the school to change to meet the needs of the students that are present there. Not the students who are gone. They're gone. They're in, in, in most cases, they're not coming back. So, but the, the argument still is, are they lowering their, 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 the teachers and administrators oftentimes feel like they have to lower their standards to... Moving from Shakespeare to James Baldwin, that ain't lowering nothing, brother. <laughs> <laughs> okay. See, that's just, that's playing games. That's playing games. Um, in music, for example, you know, I grew up singing Baroque music. I love it. Okay, but if you want to interest young people of color into the choir, you, you might want to put some gospels in there. You might want to throw a little hip hop in there. It's not going to distract from the learning of music. It's the same notes, okay, but it's a vibration that comes from that. And more important, it's the modeling and the embodying of that orchestra leader or that choir director that says, I know who my students are. I know what's going to attract them. I know what's going to put smiles on their faces when we perform. And I know what's going to bring their parents out to the, to the, to the concerts. So you, you just made two words. You just used two words that are very important, I think, in this discussion. And one is modeling and the other is embodying. So, you know, from Kendi's perspective and obviously your perspective, what is the difference between modeling anti-racist and embodying being anti-racist? Well, I, I used to use that word modeling a whole lot and um, had an opportunity to talk with a, an MDC scholar, a nonviolent communication scholar. And I tell you, it was one of those aha minutes for me. And so I do not mind sharing this, sharing it all because I think it's really important. 
Um, and what he said to me is like, oh, modeling, like a model airplane? It's not a real airplane. It's just a model of an airplane. And I go, oh, 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 I'm a clothes model. What's that? That means I wear clothes. And I said, but what is that? You know, what are, what, what's that person modeling? You know, and stuff. And it's like, well, you know, a clothes model might be just that. It doesn't say anything whether they have integrity. It doesn't say anything about their consciousness. It just says they model clothes. We have people who model leadership, but they're not real leaders, okay? There's a difference between modeling it and embodying it. What does embodying mean? It means it's 24-7. It means I have to stay unfinished. It means I'm going to be an active learner because I need to learn all that I can. If I'm just modeling it, I, I, I'm just a nice prop. Looks good. It might look really good. It might appear to you know, say all the right things and do all the right things, but at 3.30, if you're beating the kids to the parking lot, there's something missing there, okay, uh, in, in terms of what I feel about what education is. You know, education you know, it should be about the whole child and, and, you know, making big investments in what they do and how they do it and being present for them. If I'm just modeling, I show up on time, I, I teach, I do all the nice, right things, but I'm gone at 3.30. There's not, there's not the investment, okay? Embodying means I'm there, I'm present, I'm making it part of my life. I want to be at the ball games. No, I can't be all, I'm going to choose Choose one. I want to see the concerts. I want to be there to root for my students and tell them what a good job they did. I want to be present with the parents in those, in those community settings so I can say, what a fine job your son or your daughter did. You know, because that's what makes connections, okay? Because ultimately, that's all we're ever talking about here is making connections. What racism does is disconnect us. What anti-racism does is create energy that pulls us together, that changes policies, that changes the way we do things, that makes it inclusive for everyone. Big difference. Be the change. Don't model the change. Embody the change. Be the change. Be it by your way you walk, talk, interact, what you do. People will see it, and then it's easier for them to say, yeah, you know, that, that, I want to be like that guy. You know, that inspires me. She inspires me. Yeah, so big, big difference. And it's, it's a visceral dis difference. It's, it's that difference that says, I have to have compassion to do this job. I have to be a great listener to do this job. I've got to have deep empathy to do this job. This requires more than just presence. Something I, I talk about in my classes is the idea that you don't teach about math. You don't teach about literature. You teach the students to be mathematicians, yeah. to be literary scholars, to be historians. And that difference is the manifestation of that being. Huge. You know, being it instead of learning. Huge. About yeah, huge. Um, you know, because it's a fallacy to think that we can teach anybody. What we do is embody. Okay, you know, I do the example on the on the on the on the board to show you how to do this formula and stuff. Well, what am I doing? I'm embodying the solution of how to do it. I'm human. You're human. If this human can do it, you can do it. You know, it, it's it's a different kind of uh, 
it's almost a, a nexus. It's the bridge, you know, between our singularity and their singularity, between, you know, I have this role that I'm playing, okay, that I'm performing, you know, as teacher, but I can't teach anybody anything, but I can embody it. You can see it through my actions. You can see it through how I do it. And then we do what we do best. We copy what we see. You know, we're social learners, man, primarily social learners. I, I, I learned it real quick, watching my son, taking my son bowling for the first time. What am I gonna do with this thing? He's got this big heavy thing and stuff, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to show him and I'm trying to give it, to, you know, deconstructing all the moves and stuff. Gutter ball, gutter ball, gutter ball. There's some young, younger folks on a couple, you know, lanes over. He starts just studying them. You know, he's not paying any attention to me anymore, but he's watching everything that they do, okay? And I'm watching this, you know, connection that he has. So then he gets up, and now he is embodying what he has witnessed. He throws that thing straight down the pipe. Bam, strike. Big, big effect, 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 and now he wants the ball, okay? Why? Because he saw it. And he was able to, you know, take it inside him, you know, through that social learning and then to model it back, you know, model it here. In that sense, I'm modeling what I'm seeing by and then I'm embodying it so that I can do it over and over again. Okay. So uh, one, one last question regarding uh, Kendi's book. And that yeah. would be, you know, why, do you, why would you recommend teachers or, or educators as a whole read that book? You know, as I said in the beginning, we are at a time, you know, where, where there's this very unique opportunity that's availing ourselves across our country and across the world, where, where people are more conscious about this thing called race and systemic racism than, than ever before. So we have this opportunity to get people to begin to really want to embody that change, to really, let's push this thing a lot further than we've ever done it before. And, and we're seeing the signs, which is what's beautiful. Mississippi, you know, taking that battle flag out of their state flag, holy cow, that's, that's just amazing. NASCAR banning Confederate These are things I never thought I'd see, okay? So somebody is pushing policy. Okay, that's how those things happen. You know, so the legislature in Mississippi says, it's, a, it's time we do this. So that's a policy shift. They're going to have to write new policy for that. NASCAR, who had allowed that to happen, they got to write new policy now. And that policy now is going to be anti-racist. Okay, it says, we're welcoming these new generations you old boomers, I know you got all this lived experience and it's hard for you to get rid of your, you know, your, your, your emblems and symbols and stuff, but these Gen Xers and Millennials and these new Zs are saying enough. Enough. It's time for a change. And that's what anti-racism embodies, that it's time for a change and we're going to be working as active agents to deconstruct the racist policies that we've been stuck with in this country for hundreds of years. So moving on to Afro-Pessimism by Frank Wilderson. Can, first of all, can you talk a little bit about what is the book about? And, yeah. and then 
if you, while you're talking about what the book is about, uh, how does, and I know this is, a, it, this is also in the book, how does whiteness depend on blackness? Yeah. I tell you, the book was recommended to me, and it's one of those where you pick it up, and you're not sure what you're going to read. You, you start reading it, and you start going, oh, I never thought about it that way. Wow, that's interesting. Holy smokes, I don't think I can put this down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and you end up kind of like reading it straight through, you know, and it becomes one of those books that you know um, is going to be seminal for you, that it's going to be one of those foundational books. And, and that's what it has done for me. Now, why has it done that? Well, it's done that because in many ways, it's almost opposite of Kendi in, in certain kinds of ways, okay? Um, Kendi is unapologetically optimistic about the world, that he really believes that we can change racism. We can get rid of this systemic racism that has gripped our country and has you know, kept us into different camps. Wilderson's almost like, I don't know, man. This stuff is like way bigger than people think it is. It has a much deeper and longer history than people think it is. It's going to be really hard to change this thing. And so I am not optimistic. I'm really pretty pessimistic about this. But in doing that, he also then reveals the key to change if people are willing to grasp it. But he's kind of saying, I don't know if people have that kind of will, okay? And so what, is, what does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is that race, which we know is an artificial construct. Uh, it's not based on any kind of science. Um, it's a relatively new concept. It's only been in the world five, 600 years. That's it. Um, people really think race has been along, around much, much longer now, and you always have to kind of talk them off the ledge and say, well, you know, check your old sources, check old stuff, check the Torah, <laughs> you know, check, check the, um, you, you know, in any of the ancient Greeks or, or, you know, that we look at as being the greatest stories, right, so forth and so on. You won't find the word. It doesn't exist. It just doesn't. Now, did they have divisions? Oh, yeah, they had divisions by language, by religion, by nationality, by ethnic group, by, you know, all kinds of things. So there was lots of things people were using to divide themselves. Race wasn't one of them. Okay, so it's a, so it's a new concept. But it's a concept, as Cornell West would say, that matters in the world today. Okay, that race matters. Okay, so... What Wilderson is saying is, if we want to get rid of it, stop breathing life into it. And this is where it gets tough. Will white people be willing to give up whiteness? Will black people be willing to give up blackness? Will Latinx people be willing to give up whatever they associate themselves as, brown, I guess, you know, Asian, so forth and so on? Will we be willing to give those things up? In possibly go back to being ethnic or going back to be ethnic national, which then doesn't put the same kind of barriers up that race does. I can't change my skin color, okay? Um, 
but you know, but my lived experience can be altered by where I spend my time. You know, so I'm not Italian by gen by genetics, but if I live in Italian in Italy all my life, I'll take on most of their characteristics. I can live next to so-called white people my whole life. I can't change my color. I can appropriate language. I can appropriate customs. I can do a lot of that stuff, but I can't change my color. Okay. And so when we use that as the tool for division, for separating, wow, you know, that's as powerful as caste. Okay. We just, just using color hierarchy, you know, in, in its place. And we see, you know, how detrimental it has been, you know, to, to our society. So Wilderson saying, I'm, I, I know what we can do to get rid of it. We have to give up our whiteness, give up our colorness, and either adopt back our ethnicities or our, our nationalities. And that way, the power of race is gone. Okay? But that's a, that's a heck of a, a step because, you know, people like their power. People love their privilege. And that's no doubt about it. In the world today, whiteness has big currency, big currency. So that almost kind of reminds me of the, the concept of colorblindness. You know, mm -hmm. explain, colorblindness is a negative thing, of course. Yeah. So explain but, how that's what you're arguing or what Wilderson is arguing for is different than colorblindness. Yeah, yeah. The difference is, you know, in, in this kind of model, we want you to see people exactly as they are. We just don't want to put judgments that prejudge people because of their color, okay? So it's a huge difference. Colorblindness is like, I don't see anybody's color, but white is still going to be the dominating um, culture in the society. So they, so they get it both ways. They still get the power, even though they're denying that they see race. Um, in this, we're saying, no, we are truly equal. We are human beings first. Then we can get a conversation going, tell me about what religion you are. Tell me about what, what your ethnic background is. Tell me about what baseball team you like. Let, let's have a conversation. But let's not have a system that makes judgment based immediately by the amount of melanins in your skin, where I don't have a chance to give you any of my human qualities. That they, they, are, they are moved to being secondary just by the color hierarchy that exists within the culture and society. So there's, there are studies that, psychological studies that have, where they demonstrate that the first two things that everybody sees always, no matter where you are on this planet, and that is sex and race, and not necessarily in the, that order. I mean, it's, it's yes. simultaneous. So how do you, I, I'm having a hard time grasping what uh, Wilderson is arguing for. Yeah. And he, he's he's saying that... that that a child is not seeing race. Child's seeing what their parents have told them to see. Child may see variation in skin color. That's not race. That's, that's more likely to be ethnicity because we know race doesn't exist. So we've created artificially this construct of race. Ethnicity is a, still a social construct, but a far more accurate one, far 
has much greater heritage connected to it. Um, it has much more positive attributes connected to it. Um, whereas race from the get-go was set out to divide groups of people based on some arbitrary system that, that you know, somebody created. That, that, oh, by the way, varies from state to state, varies from country to country, varies from continent to continent. So there's no reliability on it at all, except that we've done this kind of universal acceptance that white is good and, and dark is bad. Um, and, and, and that stuff we know is just crap. So it's crap. Wilderson says that there, th this concept of race will always exist. What are your... What are That's your, his fear. What's your opinion on that? Um, I see it lessening, that, that we have the potential of it lessening. You know, it's the same example that I use with the NASCAR folks. Um, you know, we couldn't have asked them in, in my generation, you know, in your generation from me, to ever have asked them to take down, take down the Confederate flag. That just was not going to happen. It, 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 it took time. And, and, and think about it, we're 160 years after the Civil War. How much time do you need, you know? <laughs> I mean, really. Um, but it's because we keep making these compromises and we keep, you know, romanticizing, you know, the South and, and, and all of this. And um, we did not uh, ever act to have the kind of truth and reconciliation that we've seen like in South Africa and other places where we got people to say, hey, here's what happened, and here's what I did, uh, it was wrong, can I have your forgiveness? And now, can we get on about the business of being human beings? Can we get on about the business of being South Africans? Can we get on about the business of being American? You know, and not have American be a, a pseudonym for white, but America for anyone who, who loves this country, who's willing to defend this country, who's willing to work for this country. That's what American should mean, you know, and it should embrace all of our efforts, whether you're a Johnny on the spot newcomer or whether you've been here for 400 years and quote unquote, my people <laughs> have been here, you know, they're saying 1619, I, I can accept that. Okay, I think probably some folks here before then, but either way you go, that's a long time. That's 400 years. I don't know what else you have to do to be an American. That, that seems like that, that should make you an American, right? Okay? And, and when we start talking about who's paid their dues to be an American, well, come on. You know, been working a long time here. You know, race Sometimes is, for free, oh, by the way. Yeah. You know, ethnicity and race are such strong identifiers. I just yes. uh, published a paper with a, a student of mine from Indonesia uh, last January. Uh, in the, uh, the Journal of Diaspora about mm. the Chinese Indonesians. They originally came from China mm. close to either 14 or 1500 years ago. And yet as an ethnic group, they are still not considered native Indonesians or yeah. natural Indonesians. Yeah. It's a, so this concept of race and ethnicity dominates everywhere. Yeah, you, it, it, it really can does. Talk, can you talk um, about how, you know, this, this concept of race and ethnicity, can you talk about, you know, leave us with some 
cautiously optimistic uh, words as I as we close off this uh, this podcast. Sure. Yeah, um, we need to get back to being humans. Okay, and re- really embody what that means. Um, what does it mean to be a neighbor? We need to really do a deep dive on, on what it means to be a neighbor. What does it mean to be in a community? You know, what's, what's that really mean? You know, and, and really search for that. And, and what's fascinating is, you know, we, we have all the instruction for those things we need. Most of the great religions spelled out very clearly. Most of the great philosophies spell it out very clearly. You know, it's greed, it's that the, the money aspect of things that get this stuff all warped and wobbly and messy and stuff. And so when we get back to being concerned about the human values, meaning the, the human values, those real basic needs that all of us, that all of us um, should have, um, we get rid of a lot of the other problems. Uh, people are all concerned about all the, you know, why are you know black people concerned about the the murders that are taking place in, in Chicago on the weekends? And, and and I tell them, well, if you really want to get to that, you have to you have to still get to the, the you know the systemic racism. See, you can't separate those things. You you want to say, oh well, they should you know they care so much about uh, police killing them. Why don't they care about themselves killing them? And I said, well, there's a difference. The police are supposed to serve and protect. A lot of these other people out here killing people, they're criminals. Okay. <laughs> All right, there's a difference. Let's not conflate these things. We're not talking about the same thing. We're talking real serious apples and oranges. Don't do that. Okay, let's talk about the real issues. If we want to solve why there's so much violence in these communities, look at their education systems, look at their economic opportunities, look at their health care. And when you begin to look at these, you'll see that old nasty hand of systemic racism at the root of those differences. And we don't even want to begin to talk about wealth inequality. We have got to figure out how to equitably redistribute some of this wealth. And I'm not talking about taking billions of dollars away from the rich folks, just millions. (laughs) Not billions. They can give up some of those millions, all right? In order to have a better society, in order to have a better world, in order to have a safer world. Wouldn't you rather have a safer world than have to have big bulletproof houses and cars and, and stuff like that? Wouldn't you want to be able to walk the streets at night without being in fear? You have been places where women can walk the streets at night and, and have very little fear. That's not in this country. That's not in this country. It's, it, it, it's just one of those things that just blows me away that our women are preyed upon, you know, by predators, you know, in our society. Well, as long as we don't see women as being equal human beings, and and that's a whole nother podcast, okay, uh, and stuff, then they'll continue to be preyed. You know, simple that we got to get back to being human. And, and, and this, this is going to cut right to the core, to the core of this stuff. James, I see you as my brother. Okay? So there's certain things that I'm obligated to do with you, not over you, not under you, but with you as my brother. Okay? And when I'm encountering people on the street, I don't see them as strangers. I see them as brothers and sisters. 
And, and it changes the way you engage them. If you see this person that you don't know, to me, it's just an opportunity to, to learn more about that brother or about that sister. It's, it's, it's a total different way of orienting oneself to the world. You know, I don't want to see that person as, you know, my competition. I don't even know that person. I'd like to get to know them. Let's have a dialogue. Tell me who you are. Okay? And stuff. So, so that's where we're at. We're back to real simple stuff. Do you see me as a human being? Do you see I have feelings and needs? Can I listen to your story while, and you listen to my story? And can we find an agreement where we can make doable requests of each other so each of our needs get met? We can, see, I believe we can do that. Okay? I believe if you are a conscious person who wants a better world for your children, your grandchildren, for your progeny down the road, this is something that we commit, can commit to do together. But, but as long as we're arguing over whether or not science is correct on global, global warming, <laughs> oh, oh man, we're in trouble. Come on, you know? So, yeah, so real simple stuff. Um, teachers, don't see your students as being these objects, you know, see them as being these human beings fully capable of learning, innately capable of learning. Embody what you want them to become and, and help them on the way, okay? Administrators, you know, search your policies. Look at, look at what your guiding, you know, rules are for your, you know, rules of operation. If these things are not connecting people and bringing people together, you need to be really working together with people to change those things so they do work together. Okay, but, but that, that requires, you know, tenacity and resilience and effort and, um, you know, really applying, you know, our attentions, you know, to these things and seeing them clearly. Yeah. So, Dr. Adams, JQ, brother, <laughs> uh, this is the reason why you are always one of the keynoters at, at the Social Justice Summer Camp. Thank you so much for... Uh, privileging us with your words today. Thank well, you. Always my pleasure, man, and you know you can reach out to me anytime you need. Thank you.